If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up to the book of Jeremiah to chapter 14. Last week, we only got part of the way through verse 8, which says, Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? At first glance, that verse doesn't make a lot of sense. When you think about it, he's saying a stranger in the land who's just passing through doesn't care about the land. So Jeremiah is saying, oh Lord, it's not like you don't care about this land, but you're allowing the enemy to come in and to attack it and to destroy it. Why? Because you are the hope of Israel. See how hope is, hope is capitalized? We're talking about the Lord our God, his Savior in time of trouble. Now, as we lead into Luke chapter 1, let's go back to Isaiah for three verses. To remind us that Isaiah 43 verse 3 in Isaiah 43, verse 11, and Isaiah 60, verse 16, those three verses reveal the following. First, Isaiah 43, verse 3. Verse 1 begins that this is the <laughs> Lord who created you. Yes, I heard somebody go to meeting land. Maybe they didn't mean the mic to be open. Isaiah 43, Verse 3, referring to the Lord who created everything, everything in the universe, even our very bodies. It says, for I am the Lord, your God. Who is the Lord? He is our God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And for the next few verses, I want to focus on that word Savior. Who is our Savior? He is the Lord who is our God, who is the Holy One of Israel. Go to verse 11 in the same chapter. It says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Those are the words I want ringing in your ear like an earworm that you can't get rid of at night. Have you ever had that? You can't go to sleep because the words won't stop bouncing around your head at night. How many saviors are there? One. Go to Isaiah 60, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 16. It says, You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior. And your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So the Lord is our God, is our Savior, is our Redeemer, is the Mighty One of Jacob. And there's how many of those? Just one. Now go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I have heard over and over again this week. That Jesus is not God. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 47, are words that were quoted by Mary. It says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So when we come to the New Testament period, do the people still realize that God is the Savior? The answer is yes. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. These words are spoken by the angels who surround the throne of God. It's an angel of the Lord. How do we know it's an angel of the Lord? Because it says in verse 9, an angel of the Lord. Verse 11 says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Messiah, the Lord. So who does the angel who stands in the presence of God say that our Messiah Yeshua is? He is both Savior and the Lord. Is that pretty clear? Well, I'm going to, I don't want to say beat a dead horse. That's a bad way to put it. Let's reinforce that concept. Let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Do the Jewish believers believe that Yeshua is the Lord or that he's somebody separate from the Lord? The answer is it depends on which of them you talk to. There is not a consistent belief. I know what we believe in here, don't you? Yeah. yeah. John chapter 4, verse 42. Now when, we, when they said to the woman, what woman? We just know her as the Samaritan woman. Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Isaiah said there's how many saviors? There is only one. And that Savior back there they called the Lord, who is your God. Go to Acts chapter 5. I know you're thinking, boy, every time he gets a bunch of bad emails, we get a lecture. But we just want to make sure everybody's clear on the scriptures. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Him, referring to our Messiah Yeshua, God has exalted to his right hand. That's Psalm 110.1, right? The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. So make your enemies your footstool. To be, notice two B's in italics. That's not in the original. It says Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God has called him what? Prince and Savior. And he's to give repentance to Israel. That's the Redeemer's job. That's the Goel, the kinsman. He had to be the nearest kinsman who had the ability and the willingness to redeem us. The way that's worded. With that to be. It almost sounds like he wasn't Prince and Savior until his resurrection. 
And that's why I had to point out to be is not in the Greek from which this is translated. Yeah, the two B's put in there for doctrinal purposes. Hmm. If this was originally Hebrew, and it was, it would be is. How do we know that this is originally in Hebrew? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews, that is the Hebrew-speaking Jews, meaning the apostles, by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So are the disciples Hebrew speakers or Greek speakers? They're Hebrew speakers. It says so right here. And we're going to learn tomorrow why the Hebrew speakers look down on the Greek speaking Jews. Hmm. We'll find that out. Acts chapter 13, verse 23. Acts chapter 13, verse 23. From this man's seed. What man are we talking about? David. According to the promise. The promise written where? In the Tanakh. The Old Testament. The Torah. God raised up for Israel a savior. Dash dash. Yeshua. What a surprise. After John had first preached before his coming. The baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. What does verse 24 mean? What did John preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to prepare the way. And then God sent Yeshua our Messiah, his only begotten son, to be the Savior. Then to Philippians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is where? In heaven. For which we also eagerly wait for the Savior... The Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. So Yeshua is the Savior. He is the Lord. He fits right into those verses from Isaiah that we looked at earlier. Who wrote Philippians? Paul did. Another book Paul wrote is 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy, right after 2 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to look at four, well, maybe three different verses from 1 Timothy. Maybe four, we'll see. But at any rate, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, our hope. Wait a minute. Paul just called Yeshua the Savior, and now he's calling God the Savior. If the scripture says there's only one, is it God or is it Yeshua? Yes, yes he's trying to tell us that Yeshua is God. 
He is the Lord. He always was. He is. He always will be. So in the same book, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. First Timothy 2, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Again, he's emphasizing no one could save us except the Lord, our God. And then chapter 4, verse 10. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. Oh, does anybody ever get reproached for your witness, for your testimony, for living a life that's different from the world? Yeah. Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. That's an odd thing to say. Especially of those who believe. Why do you think that's added? Because he's only the Savior of those who have faith and believe in him. True. So he came to be the Savior of all, but not all will receive him. Yeah. So everyone who ends up going to the lake of fire had an opportunity to be saved. Brought to mind the scripture in Hebrews 9 that says Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. It doesn't say all. He would have borne the sins of all if all would have received him. But what does it say in Deuteronomy 30? I set before you today life and good, death and evil. Choose life. But we get to choose. There are people out there who believe that even if you choose to reject Messiah, to reject God, he'll save you anyway. Yeah, that's not in the scriptures. You're listening to some false teacher if you believe that. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Chapter 1. Verse 10. Three times in 1 Timothy... Paul emphasizes that God is our Savior. And now in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, it says, But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So again, does this mean Paul's changed his mind about who the Savior is? No. He's trying to remind us and assure us that Yeshua, our Savior, is the Lord, our God, the Holy One of Israel. Where have you heard that phrase before, the Holy One of Israel? Isaiah 12. Keep a finger here in 2 Timothy and go back to Isaiah chapter 12. Because I want you to see that this is not just a New Testament concept. 
is the way it's always been. It's just not always been understood correctly. Isaiah chapter 12 is a portion that's read at the Feast of Tabernacles when they do the rejoicing at the house of the water pouring or Simcha Beit HaShoevah in Hebrew in John chapter 7. So in Isaiah 12, 4 it says, And in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. You will say, Praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord. For he has done excellent things. This is known, or it's better, make this known in all the earth. I'll cry out and shout to inhabitants of own, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. So the Holy One of Israel will be ruling and reigning from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem through the Messianic Kingdom. We know who that is, don't we? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. So let's go back to 2 Timothy, where you kept your finger, or your neighbor's finger, I don't care whose finger. And turn a couple pages to the right, to the book of Titus. Who wrote Titus? Paul did. Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Well, I think I want to start in verse 2, if you don't mind. It says, in hope of eternal life. What does that mean? Why is Paul in hope of eternal life? He hasn't died yet. He hasn't died yet. That's right. In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie. What does he mean, God cannot lie? It means God can't lie. We know that from Numbers. We know that from a lot of places. Malachi chapter 1. Uh-huh. Promise before time began. Wait a minute. God promised eternal life before time began. That's why the scripture Wait. calls Messiah the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yes, Edmund. Surely hope there is, is not the sort of hope we're not sure that we talk about. Hope is the the certainty, the anchor right. that we can rely on. Right. So it's not I, a, I oh my, I'm afraid. It. It's not that kind, right? It's the certainty that I'm going, that even though I die, I am secure in Christ, rather than uh, I hope I'm not dead yet, but, or, or am I misunderstanding what you were saying? No, I, you and I are saying the same thing. Just oh. that he had not died yet. But he knew that this was coming. Just an expectation. Not just an expectation, but an earnest expectation, he would say. Verse 3, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commitment, the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, our Savior. So in verse 3, he says, God our Savior. In verse 4, he says, the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, our Savior. He's not changing his mind. He's not speaking out of two sides of his mouth. He's trying to reassure us that we have understood correctly 
that Messiah is God from all eternity past. And if you think about it, this is kind of a sowed, a deeper meaning. Yeah, it should take them right back to those verses in Isaiah we were just reading from. So all those people that contact me and say the Bible never says Yeshua is God are just not putting the pieces together. And I want to make sure we put them together. Titus chapter 2. Are there two chapters? Yeah, there are. Okay. It's such a short book. I wanted to be sure. Titus chapter 2, verse 10. Not pilfering. What's pilfering? Stealing. Stealing. But showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. How much clearer could Paul be that Yeshua is God and always was? And look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Does that mean a lawless deed is a good thing? Or a bad thing. It's a bad thing. And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. What are good works? That word's ergod, and we know that from your teaching. What ear what are good works? Those are the things you do in obedience to God's commandment, right? Walking as he taught us to walk, as he commanded us to. Chapter 3 of Titus, verse 4. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. What does that mean? Can we earn salvation? No. What's that? He did not have to. But according to his mercy he saved us. Oh, that word mercy. Over and over and over again it says he gives mercy to whom? Those who love him and keep his commandments. Interesting. Again, Titus chapter 3 verse 6. Whom he poured out in us abundantly through Yeshua the Messiah, our Savior. By now you must be thinking, well, Paul certainly believes that Yeshua is God. What about Peter? Go to 2 Peter. Chapter 1. Makes you wonder if Titus was having a little trouble in his faith. A little trouble understanding Yeshua and God are one, you might say, from John chapter 10. I and my Father are one. 
There are people that say, well, that just means we're of one mind. We're like-minded. Why do they pick up rocks to stone him? Yeah, that would be a really good question. But also when the apostle said, show us the Father, what did Messiah say? You've already seen the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yep. Second Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, Shimon is Hebrew, Petros is Greek, a bondservant, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah. A bondservant is one who used to be a slave who's been set free, but continues to serve the master out of love and loyalty. An apostle is Hebrew, Sheliach, it means a sent one, one who's been sent on a mission. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Hey, Peter doesn't cut corners, right? Our God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Is he calling Yeshua God? He is. Is he calling him the Savior? He is. Is he calling him Messiah? He is. Because he is all things. Second Peter 1 verse 11. Don't worry, we'll get to verse 9 shortly. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Peter calls him our Lord and Savior. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. So Peter again emphasizes he is the Lord, the same Lord we see from Genesis through Malachi. They're again entangled in them and overcome that as they fall back into sin, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Did I hear Mulaney? Mm -hmm. I did not. Okay. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 2. That you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets... Does Peter want us to remember the words of the prophets of the Old Testament? Particularly Isaiah, right. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. When he uses the thee, what does thee mean? There's only one. The Lord and Savior. That's our Messiah Yeshua. Same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. To be the glory both now and forever. Amen. When you're a Hebrew speaker, as Peter was, to say our Lord, is that a definite or an indefinite word? It's definite. It's just like putting the thee before Lord. 
indicates we have one and only one. Our last reference is in 1 John, because we've looked at Paul extensively. We've looked at Peter. Now let's look at John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses the Yeshua is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. That's pretty cool, huh? Let's go back to Jeremiah. In case you've forgotten where we started. Jeremiah. Chapter 14, verse 9. Why should you be like a man astonished? The you there is talking to the Lord. Like a mighty one who cannot save. Is Jeremiah saying that the Lord can't save? No, he's saying why would people think that you might be like that? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Can the Lord deliver them from Babylon? Yes, he can. Will he? No, he won't. He said he won't. Why? Because of their sin. Let's go to Psalm 42, verse 10. Psalm 42, verse 10. Psalm chapter 42, verse 10. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies approach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So what are the enemies saying? Where is this God you say will deliver? You keep talking about God's going to deliver us. Where is he? You're being destroyed. You're being conquered. Where is this God you keep talking about? Psalm 79, verse 10. It all comes down to Proverbs 28, 9. If you turn your ear away from hearing the Torah, God says he won't hear your prayers. Your prayer is an abomination. So when they have provoked God to the point that he turns his back on them and says, I will not deliver you. Then the enemies in the world start to reproach Israel and to mock God. That it can only go on for so long, right? Psalm 79 verse 10. 
Psalm 79, verse 10. A soft is a prophet. He's calling God to come back and defend Israel. He says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Let it be known among the nations in our sight, the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. In other words, when the nations mock you, God, and say, where is your God? Then come defend us and show them. And do the prophets tell us God will do just that? Indeed they do. Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 2. Why should the Gentiles say... So where is their God? Hmm. Again, they mock God. Go to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 takes place in the day of the Lord, in the tribulation period. With the wars raging throughout the world. Joel chapter 2 verse 17. Joel chapter 2, verse 17. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? This is the last straw. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. That's when the Lord returns for the battle of Armageddon. To show the nations of the world. Do you want to know where their God is? I will show you where their God is. And the nations will regret ever having asked that question, won't they? What nation? We're talking about when all nations come against Jerusalem in Zechariah chapter 14. Oh no, this is as that's happening. This is on the way. This is when the Lord in Revelation 19:11 steps up on that white horse and says, "Come on, we got work to do." Here, hold my drink. Yeah, hold my coffee. Okay, back to Jeremiah 14, we're up to verse 10. We can also add Isaiah 59 too. Let's turn to it. Go ahead, Daniel, speak on it. That God could have intervened at any time. And we mentioned that it was the sins of the people that kept him from it. Isaiah 59.2 is right on point. But if you don't mind, let's start in verse 1. Behold, which means shut up and listen. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. 
but your iniquities, that word means lawlessness, but your lawlessness has separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For, what does for mean? Because your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, which means lawlessness. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. So he's saying every one of their actions is to breach God's commandments, to turn their backs on him to the point that while he can save, he's not going to until they want, until they repent. What happens when they repent? Then God forgives. God forgives and God restores. So back to Jeremiah 14, verse 10. Oh, this breaks my heart. God told them that if they will repent, he will defend them. And they specifically say, no. We will go to other nations and make treaties and let the other nations defend us so that we can continue walking in sin. Because if we want God to defend us, we have to repent, and we like our sins too much. Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord to this people. Don't you feel just an air of ominous when it says to this people? Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. That means they're going from country to country looking for allies to defend them against Babylon. Where do they primarily turn? To Egypt. And Egypt takes their gold and silver and promises to deliver them when they're attacked. And what happens when they're attacked? Egypt says, hey, I got your gold and silver. (laughs) Sorry. So they've not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. They deliberately chose to go find other nations to defend them so they would not have to repent and rely on God. So it says, therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will, re- he will remember their iniquity. What's that word iniquity? Lawlessness. In Hebrew it's avon, as in avon calling. And punish their sins. When it says he will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins what if they had repented he would have what he would have forgiven their iniquities and their sinfulness but because they refused to repent oh my they're going into captivity doesn't this remind me of Genesis 15 which says the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete that cup of iniquity was not yet full. Yeah, and he says the same thing about his people. And with his people, the cup of iniquity is full, isn't it? Yeah. Verse 11. The Lord's going to speak directly to Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been pleading with the Lord. Lord, defend him. Don't go away. Protect him. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for this people. For their good. Do not pray for this people. 
Go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. It's not the first time God's told Jeremiah not to pray for them, and Jeremiah keeps praying for them anyway. And God says, hey, I'm not listening. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. Why is that bad? Keep reading. The fathers kindle the fire. Well, if it's not Shabbat, what's wrong with that? And the women need dough, and all that is to make cakes for the queen of heaven. What queen of heaven? Ishtar, from which we get the English word Easter. So who was involved in the worship of Ishtar? Everybody, the men, the women, and the children. It was pervasive in the society. And then in Jeremiah chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 14. We'll start in 13 because verse 14 begins with so. We need to know what so is there for. Not needle and thread type so. It says, for according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah. Oh my. They had pagan idols, so many. So many. And according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing. Altars to burn incense to Baal. So do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. So when we come to Jeremiah 14 verse 11, the Lord says, Do not pray for this people for their good. This is the third time God's told him not to pray for his people. Why is he telling him a third time? Because what does Jeremiah keep doing? He's praying for them anyway. Just in case. Just in case they've repented and I didn't know about it. And God keeps saying, no. You've preached repentance ever since the last time I told you. And they haven't repented yet. Go to the book of John in the New Testament. John chapter 17. Verse 9. Messiah's Prayer. He says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So when Messiah intercedes on behalf of us, he's interceding on behalf of those who have come to God by faith. Washed clean in the blood of Messiah. With the faith of Messiah and to keep the commandments of God. But he says specifically, I'm not praying for the unsaved, those that reject you. 
So it kind of goes right along with what God's telling Jeremiah, right? What if by some stroke of grace they repented in Jeremiah's day? Do you think the Lord would continue to say, don't pray for them? Neither do I. I think he would say, pray for them. But unfortunately, their judgment is sealed. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 12. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. That means their judgment is sealed. If they were to start offering sacrifices to the Lord, would it be in true repentance? No. no. It would be in addition to their little cupcakes to the queen. And would be in addition to all their pagan idolatry. Just one more God to call upon. Is that what the Lord wants to be? Just one more God out of many? Kind of like what uh, they're being taught today. Yep. Oh, yep. I should, no, I won't. Okay. Continuing on in verse 12, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 21. I tell too many stories. Ezekiel 14, verse 21. But I heard a world-famous theologian today, a Protestant theologian, say that the Pope, he's the real deal. That we need to be following the Pope. We need to put the Protestant denominations back into Catholicism. Because we have a true leader of God. <clears throat> I don't think so. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 21 says what? For thus says the Lord God... You can see how it's spelled. It's my Lord and then the Tetragrammaton. How much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it? Means what? Their judgment has already been sealed. It's been decreed. And the only thing that's going to avert God's judgment when it's been decreed is repentance. And he's not going to find it in Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 6, in case we think, well, that wouldn't happen today. <coughs> Go to Revelation. Maybe we'll skip straight to chapter 16. Do the short version. Instead of six. Yeah, we'll do 16 instead of 6. I could do 30 minutes on the sealed judgments, but there's no reason to. By the time we come to Revelation 16, how many of the sealed judgments have been opened? Six. All seven. How many of the trumpet judgments have been sounded? All of them. How many of the bold judgments have been poured out? 
They're poured out in chapter 16. So starting in verse 8, says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent to give him glory. There were seven seal judgments. There were seven trumpet judgments. This is the fourth of the bowl or vial judgments. And still, they blaspheme the name of God to his face. And they do not repent to give him glory. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. That word's ergon, it's their works. They will not repent. No matter what God does at this point. So what is the sixth bowl? They dry up the river Euphrates. So they invite all the armies to Armageddon. Yeah. So let's go to Revelation chapter 18. Verse 8. Referring to Babylon the Great, which is the religious system from the Tower of Babel forward. All about the Queen of Heaven and the mother and child. It says, therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. What happens when the judgment is sealed? Can't be changed. Can't be changed. Gets executed. Back to Jeremiah. Chapter 14, verse 13. Then I said, Ah, Lord God. What else can he say? That awe, you can just hear the pain in his voice and the sorrow, and it just rings in the ears. When he uses the phrase Lord God, it means what's written is written in stone. It's not changing. He says, Behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. So here's Jeremiah. He's alone proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming repent and be delivered. So who are these other prophets? These are the false prophets. The TV evangelists, if you will, of the day. It almost sounds like Jeremiah. With what God told him, don't pray for the 
with what God told him. Don't pray for these people. It's almost like Jeremiah's defense, but Lord, they can't help it. They're hearing the words of these false prophets. Yes, this is Jeremiah's reaction to that. But Lord, they're listening to the false prophets. These dumb sheep, I got to give them the true word. And that's what he's been doing. But what did God tell him originally? They're not going to listen. And that's personal. They may be dumb sheep, but that's personal responsibility. Yeah, they're making a specific conscious choice to reject God's deliverance Mm -hmm. so that they can continue to live in sin. We hear people today wanting to excuse people because they're ignorant. That's not an excuse. Right. Are you saying this is like today? I'm saying it's a lot like today. Yeah. So in verse 13, Jeremiah's heart's breaking. Lord, they're listening to the false prophets. But is that an excuse? Does God say, oh, well then, if that's the case, I won't judge the people. No. What did he say in the book of Matthew about the... Well, let's go look. Turn to the book of Matthew. Even in Deuteronomy, what were they commanded? They were commanded to teach it to their children and to their children and to their children. And did they do it? No. Nope. They did not. But if they had, whoa. What if they had, whoa? Yeah. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, because this is a point that I hadn't thought to cover, but I hear this a lot. That God will not judge people who are breaking his commandments because they've been taught wrong. He'll understand. Yeah, but look at Matthew 23, starting in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Since they're not horses, woe is a bad thing, right? For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Does Messiah, well, we'll just let the proselytes into heaven anyway because you taught him wrong? When he says twice the son of hell, what does that mean? They're on the road to the lake of fire and they're taking as many people with them as possible. Is that like today in our cemetery? I mean, seminaries? Um, in many cases. So let's talk about this idea of false prophets. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 5. How do we know that they're false prophets? Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 5. You were just going to point out that? In the verse, in chapter 14. In chapter 14. I will make sure everything's all right. He's not saying God, the false prophets aren't saying God will bless you. They're saying, they're putting it on their own pride that they're saving. The false prophets are putting, I don't know exactly how you put it. Yes, the false prophets say, I will give you assured peace. So they're putting 
They're putting their trust in a man instead of God. Oh, that makes me think of Isaiah, doesn't it? Don't put your trust in a man. But Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. Well, that's why we thought they were false prophets, because he tells us. And the priests rule by their own power. That means not according to God's commandments, but they're doing what they want to do. And my people love to have it so. So why do the people put up with the false prophets and false teachings? Because they, like they like it. They want their ears tickled. Second Timothy chapter 4. Yeah. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 14. God, God tells them how to judge a false prophet. God tells them how to judge a false prophet. And how is that? By any prophecy failing. By any prophecy failing, but also, he says, look at their works. But the people love the tickling of their ears. But so the people say, love the tickling of their ears. Say, so what if that didn't come true? I really like the way this guy preaches. So they say, so what if that didn't come true? I like the way that man preaches. Yeah, we've lost people in here from this fellowship Same. who so claim to be true prophets of God who said, yeah, about 15% of what I prophesy comes to pass. And all I could say was, is that the standard God gives us? And they said, well, God told me to ignore those verses. Ah, okay. First key to a false prophet is, don't listen to God, listen to me. Okay. Jeremiah 14. We're still talking about verse 13, but we have to look at verse 14 to help explain verse 13. So the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. Meaning they say, the Lord told me this. He says, I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. We'll come back to that verse in a minute. Go to Lamentations. Who wrote Lamentations? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah wasn't enough for him to get all his frustrations out. So he wrote Lamentations also. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 14. Anytime you hear a prophet say, God changed his mind. God's commandment has changed. Then look out for the lion of 1 Kings chapter 13. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 14 says, Your prophets. Notice he doesn't say my prophets. He says your prophets. Has seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity. That means lawlessness. Notice. A false prophet does not call the people to repentance. To bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. Go to Ezekiel 22, verse 28. Ezekiel 22, verse 28. When I hear prophets on YouTube saying... Donald Trump will never leave office. He will be the next president of the United States. 
I go, is that what the prophets of God do? Or do the prophets of God call us to repentance? Ezekiel 22, verse 28. Her prophets plastered them. Don't you love that word, plastered? That means not one or two, right? Plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 7. And see, that's not just an Old Testament concept. Matthew chapter 7. Because you asked that, we'll start in verse 13 instead of verse 15. You get two bonus verses. The words are read. These are Messiah's words out of his own lips. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. The many think they're saved. They think they're on the path to heaven, to eternal life. And where are they on the road to? Destruction, that's the lake of fire. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Why, if we're all trying to follow the preachers and teachers that teach us God's word, are most people on the wrong road? Verse 15. Yep, they're listening to an ear tickler. Because of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. What does sheep's clothing represent? They claim to be preachers of God, right? Ministers of God. But inwardly, they're ravening, ravenous wolves. How would we know them? That's verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. If there is a preacher, teacher, prophet out there telling you to break God's commandments... Are they from God? They are not. How do we know? Many will say to me in that day, that's verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. But you hear a lot of preachers say, that just means calling on the name of Jesus. Well, I say, read on. Many will say to me in that day, what day? Judgment day, the day of the Lord. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Does he say, I knew you for a while? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What does that word practice mean? means it's an ongoing thing. This is their works. Their works are lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Breaking the commandments of God. Is thinking back to uh, the Torah. Thinking back to the Torah. The story of Achan. Story of Achan. If I said it right. The, when Achan sinned. When Achan sinned. God turned away. 
God turned away from? Because the rep- he was waiting on repentance. He was waiting on repentance. And when the people said, what's the matter? And when the people said, what's the matter? Then the whole story was brought forth clan by clan as God examined Then the whole story was brought forth clan by clan as they checked to see which one is it. And God pointed out? Aiken's clan. Aiken's clan. And the point that I, I think I'm driving at. If the I point you're driving at? I keep it together. Is it's common. It's common. Among people. Among people. To fall into iniquity. To fall into iniquity. And God wants repentance. And God wants repentance. But repentance often is not forthcoming. Repentance often is not forthcoming. And then the false prophets come in. Then the false prophets come in and tell you what. And so you've got, well, they tell you everything's okay. Tell you everything's God, okay. You know, God forgives, God forgets, God is grace, God is blah, 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 blah. Their repentance is a work. And so you smooth over, but what? What God is looking for. What God is looking for. Is like in the heart of David. Is like in the heart of David. He sinned, but he repented. He was quick to repent when he was convicted. Yeah, he was quick to con- to repent when he was convicted. He sat in ashes and, yeah, and, and sackcloth. And throughout, but but his heart changed. He didn't just sit in ashes. But his heart changed. His yeah. Heart was in them too. Yeah. So that's something that God wants from us also. It's so what God wants from us only. He wants us to repent. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And we sincerely repent. And we sincerely repent. Then God will continue working in our lives. Then God will continue working in our lives. And he will forgive us. And what we see in spades, I'm afraid, in the world. Uh-huh. What we see in the world is that people become hardened to sin. Is that people become sin. hardened to sin? Ooh, their consciences get seared like with a hot iron. Right, and so we're—I mean, the things that you see on YouTube and wherever, where you see these preachers saying these awful things—that whole process that, that, that Aiken was involved in, there it is again, and it's—it is—it's. Well, it's epidemic. It's endemic or whatever it is. Yep. It's everywhere. So yep. we just need to keep ourselves tender before the Lord, all of us, and especially those that follow scriptural teaching. Mm-hmm. We need to be aware that the Holy Spirit expects us to be in a repentant state whenever we sin. Yep. How many times in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which are letters to seven churches, does Messiah say repent? Over and over. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Matthew chapter 24, verse 11. Messiah warned us about false prophets already, but he adds another warning here. Matthew 24, verse 11. And says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Aren't we there? Matthew chapter 24, 11. Aren't we there? Yep. Aren't we there in regular church before we ever came here? Yep. So verse 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. But notice the next verse. And because lawlessness will abound. Why will lawlessness abound? Verse 11, because of the 
Because being taught by the many false prophets. Exactly. Matthew 24, verse 24. And you don't realize how prevalent it is till you leave it and look back on it and go, listen to what I was being taught. Yeah. You kind of step back and take a 10,000 foot view. You step back for a 10,000 foot view and then you see. It's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. Yep. Matthew 24, 24 says, For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So throughout the tribulation period, there's 144,000 Jewish witnesses going out and testify of Messiah, but you have just as many or more false prophets out there telling the people to ignore those crazy people. Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 1. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there, was, there were also false prophets among the people, talking about Israel in the past. Even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. I wish verse 2 said, and nobody's going to listen to him, but it doesn't, does it? And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. What is truth? Psalm 119, verse 142. The Torah, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So if you read verses 1 and 2 together, these false teachers are going to tell you to stop following God's commandments. That that's not what God wants. If you study the events of the 4th century, you're going to find the introduction of the boar's head at the Christmas festival. Yeah, that was, becomes the Christmas ham of today. It was meant to be a statement directly to God that we will not follow your commandments and thought that that would be pleasing to God. Did that come from a true prophet or a false prophet? There's also this big push for the ecumenical movement. The ecumenical movement, yeah. You know, when, it, when you read verse 1, it says the false teachers who deny the Lord who fought them the ecumenical movement says that there's, you know, we're all just spokes in a wheel. There's mul- everybody's saved. It doesn't matter what religion you are. Any ways to God. Yep. We're all going to heaven. This ecumenical movement includes witches. Right. And down in Jamaica, they got voodoo. It includes the voodoo. It includes all the pagan gods of the pagan religions. Ugh. Let's go to First John. First John. I guess. First John chapter four, verse one. 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That verse is designed to say, don't think that every preacher who steps into the pulpit is bringing you a message from God. What should we do with everything we're taught, no matter who teaches it? Be a Berean. Go back and see, does it conform to the scriptures, or does it contradict the scriptures? Why doesn't Satan want us to follow God's word? Because we might actually get saved, yeah. Okay, back to Jeremiah, chapter 14. We're up to verse 14. This time we want to look at it a little more deeply, though. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. Divination is part of witchcraft. And let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. So if anybody's reading your horoscope every morning, don't do it. How about playing with our Ouija boards? Oh no. But how about a fortune teller with her tarot cards? Uh-uh. I actually had a friend in college who was a PhD candidate, very intelligent, who under the teaching of Derek Prince was convicted. He went home, built a big fire, threw his Ouija board in that fire. The next morning there was the Ouija board. Yeah. He buried it in his backyard because it wouldn't burn. Wow. Yeah. I could tell you some stuff, but I won't. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. Just close your eyes and think back to King Saul. When he did not destroy the Amalekites, God took his throne, meaning his son Jonathan couldn't be king after him. But Saul continued to reign until he did what? He went to the witch at Endor and had him bring up the soul of Solomon. Samuel. Samuel. Thank you. Samuel. The other S guy. Samuel. And we know it was Samuel because the first thing Samuel said is, I taught you better than that. Go to 2 Kings 17. Some guy with an S name. Second Kings chapter 17. 
Tell you, Danny, I'm getting older. You be ready. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 17. Uh, this is so disgusting. We'll start in verse 16 for context. Okay, I'll start in verse 13. What's the message of the false prophets? Versus the true prophet. Versus the true prophet. Every true prophet of God had the same message, and it was repent. That's it. So we'll start in verse 13, as Daniel asks. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah. By all of his prophets, every seer. How, how many? Every. All and every. Saying, turn. That's a commandment. It's shuvu. It's a commandment to repent. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the Torah. According to which part? How about 9 out of 10? According to all the Torah which I commanded your fathers which I sent to you by my servants the prophets nevertheless they would not hear. But stiffen their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. So here, as in Hebrews chapter 3, God likens disobedience to a lack of faith. That it's a lack of faith that causes the disobedience. Verse 15, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. In his testimonies, which he had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. I had an interesting response to that this week. Somebody asked for a verse that says we're not to take the pagan practices and use them to worship God, and I quoted Deuteronomy chapter 12, you know, those ending verses. And the guy's response was, Hey, that's only talking about child sacrifice. Everything else is okay. Really? Is that what those verses say? No. Verse 16, so they left all the commandments. What is that word left? Azov. It means to abandon. Turn their backs upon all the commandments of the Lord their God. Made for themselves a molded image and two camps made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. What does that word sold mean? Machar? Made themselves a slave to sin. Is that what Paul's talking about in Romans 6? You used to be a slave to sin, but now you've been set free see, to be a slave to righteousness. See, this is God telling them, like, you turn from your righteousness to become a slave of sin. Yeah, this is God saying, you turn from your righteousness to become a slave of sin. And it should have been the other way around. It should have been the exact opposite, which is, again, Romans chapter 6. But rather than going there, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 6. Ezekiel 
the little paragraph that I just read ends. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. Yeah, didn't say he winked at it, didn't say, eh, it's okay, or I'll overlook it this time. He was very angry. And he removed them from his sight. Is that what you want to hear on Judgment Day? No. Is get out of my sight? No. Ezekiel 13, verse 6. They have envisioned, talking about the false prophets, futility meaning things that won't come to pass, and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. That's the bottom line. They prophesy what they want to have happen, and then they sit back and hope it will. But when you see that word futility, what do you know? It's not going to come to pass, is it? It is not. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 14. We're up to verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord, concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name whom I did not send, and who say sword and famine shall not be in this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed the old Haman principle they're going to die exactly by the way they told the people they wouldn't go to Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 5 Deuteronomy chapter 13 verse 5 all the way back in Deuteronomy 13 what did God say happens to false prophets who try to turn people's hearts away from the Lord our God but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. To entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk means they're trying to get you to put aside God's commandments and not follow them. That's Daniel chapter 7 verse 25, right? That word entice It's more than just a soft invitation. The word means to thrust away. To thrust away, to push them. Yeah, when you listen to the false prophets, they're not gently suggesting, they're pushing hard. Don't you dare keep the commandments of God. Satan wants you to do that. He's trying to lead you into works-based salvation, which doesn't exist. That's where we need to dig in our heels and say, we are not following you. We will follow whom? The Lord our God. What does the Bible say? Go back to Jeremiah 14. And you know, the thing is, if you keep your doctrine based solo scripture, straight from the scriptures, uh -huh. when they argue with you, they're not really arguing with you. They're arguing with God. 
Yeah. So if you if you keep your if you keep your theology your your doctrine scriptural based only, the only person they're arguing against or coming against is God. Right. Shouldn't there be a verse somewhere that says all scripture is God breathed and is good for doctrine, reproof, and correction? Yeah, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So let's go back to Jeremiah 14. There's more about the fact that not only are the false prophets to die, but verse 16 goes on. And the people to whom they prophesy, that is, that they led away from God, shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they will have no one to bury them. Them nor their wives, their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. So the people who listen to the false prophets will die by the sword and by famine and will not be buried, which was an ultimate disgrace in the scripture to be unburied. That tells you how many people will be left in Jerusalem because there isn't anybody left to bury them. You're absolutely right. God said there would be none left, so how many do you think will be left? None. Let's go on to verse 17 of Jeremiah 14. It says, therefore, what does therefore mean? Because I'm going to judge these false prophets. You shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day. And let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people. Has been broken with a mighty stroke. With a very severe blow. That virgin daughter of Israel represents the nation before it was ravished by Babylon, before they listened to the false prophets. It says, because of your false prophecies, the nation has been destroyed. No pressure. No pressure, yep. And verses 17 to 18 is Jeremiah weeping over the death of the people and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The temple of God, all the buildings, the wall, it's all going to be destroyed. And that's what he means in verse 17. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day. He takes no joy in saying, ha ha, look, I was right. No, he cries over the death and the destruction. Saying, I wish y'all would have listened. Verse 18, if I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with the sword. They're not buried, they're just lying dead in the field. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. So Jeremiah knows who to blame, the prophets and the priests that led the people into sin. But does that help the people who were misled? The answer is no. That's probably the most question I get asked in emails across my 30 years of ministry. But all those people who have been taught wrong, 
They'll get to go to heaven, right? God will overlook it. He won't hold it against them, right? To verse 19. The people are the ones crying out in verse 19. Crying out to God. Have you, that is the Lord, utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there's no healing for us? We look for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. The people are crying out to God and saying, Why are you judging us? What do we do? They're sacrificing children. They're worshiping pagan gods. They're doing all kinds of immorality. But they're saying, but, but, but the prophets are telling us it's okay. They've got two, two bulls to worship. Yeah. Why are you punishing us for doing what your prophets are telling us to do? Problem is, those aren't God's prophets. This is the flat forehead moment. This is the flat forehead moment. It's a recognition and a realization that we are responsible for our sin. The old, the devil made me do it, is not an excuse. We were taught wrong, is not an excuse. Would you believe that's coming up very shortly? Today we really have no excuse because there's at least one Bible in every household in America. And you think people should read them? Well, what a concept. They will be held accountable, but you know, back in this yep. day they didn't... They didn't have Torah scrolls very much. Right. But they still, they still have no excuse. They still have no excuse because when somebody tells you it's okay to sin against God. You know it's wrong. You should know it's wrong. But in verse 19, the people are saying, what do we do? Why are you mad at us? Why are you judging us? Verse 20. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity that is lawlessness of our fathers. For we have sinned against you. They acknowledge the sin, but they don't want. They don't, they don't repent. They don't turn from it. That's the message we keep hearing today. You don't repent of your sins because that's a work. Because they're already forgiven. Yep, you just... Have faith and continue in your sins and believe that God will deliver you anyway. So that's the point of the people in verse 20. We acknowledge our sins. We're not going to change. We're not going to repent. We're not going to do anything different. But hey, we acknowledge it. And what good does that do them? None. Let's keep reading. This prayer reads nothing like the prayer of Nehemiah or Daniel. Those are prayers of repentance. Those are prayers where they're just pouring their hearts out and they say, Lord, you can make covenant with us. Forget, I mean, that's a true prayer of repentance. This is just lip service. Right. Verse 21. We're almost out of time. Verse 21. Do not abhor us. What does it mean to abhor us? Don't hate us. For your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Oh, wait a minute. 
Wait a minute. Yes, you owe us. But let's go back to chapter Exodus 19, verse 5 for a minute. Exodus 19, verse 5. Yeah, it's the if they've forgotten. That's exactly right. Go back to Exodus 19, 5. There are unconditional covenants. But the covenant in Exodus chapter 19 is not unconditional. It's very much conditional. Chapter 19, Exodus 19, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Did they do their part? Did they obey his voice? Did they keep his covenant? They did not. But they say, we didn't do our part, but we demand you do yours. That's not the way a conditional covenant works. Hmm. We are out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 22. Maybe I should have done one more verse and finished the chapter, but we didn't. So we'll pick up next time in Jeremiah 14, verse 22.